All right, it's good to be with you all. Greetings from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, actually, the catalyst for me being up here uh, this weekend was a wedding. I officiated a wedding yesterday um, in L.A. in the hills, and I usually don't travel to do weddings. I don't, you know, do destination weddings, and so the couple comes to me and says, hey, will you marry us? And, um, you know, it's not going to be in Fort Lauderdale. It's going to be out of town. I said, oh, I don't, I don't do that. I don't, I, don't, I don't travel. I don't go out of town. Uh, so I told him no, and then I thought, wait a second, where is the wedding going to be? And they said, L.A., and I said, I'm, I'm there, I'm in. All expenses, paid trip to L.A., I'm in. Um, Fort Lauderdale during this time is awful. I mean, it is, it is hot, it is humid, there's mosquitoes. Um, so this has been great, this has been awesome. Um, it is good to be with you. I, I'm actually jumping into this series um, that you all are in in the Gospel of John, um, interestingly enough, I get the passage that has the verse that is kind of the theme verse, as I understand it, of Prism Church. If you walk right out of here and you see the sign, you'll see uh, John eight twelve. Um, so let me just read it uh, again, and 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 then we'll we'll get going. The, the verse says, um, "When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light.'" Of life, I had a guy who came into our church. He was brand new to the church, and so we grabbed coffee that week and sat down. and He began to share his story of how he ended up in South Florida. Um, really, really unique story. He um, he, sixty years old. He built a business um, earlier in his life. Very successful. Had his PhD. Had a doctorate. He was successful. He was educated. Um, had wife and kids. Um, money, very wealthy, um, and then there was a divorce. Um, his kids stopped talking to him. Um, he lost all of his money. Um, he actually became a, a porn actor in order to make ends meet. And um, now on the other side of that is having trouble getting work and getting jobs because of his history. Um, uh, told me he has HIV. He um, is sitting there at the table, and he, he, he phrased it this way, and it stuck with me. He said, um, Brad, I'm here. I've landed here in South Florida, and I'm just asking the question, how did I get here? How in the world did I get here? And your story might not be as elaborate uh, as that or pronounced as that, but perhaps there's been moments in your life, and maybe it's happening right now, where you go, how did I end up here? How did I get here? Life hasn't worked the way I wanted it to work. It hasn't gone the way I wanted it to go. How did I get here? And as that, as kind of our backdrop, hear afresh and anew the words of Jesus to us in that space where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Very refreshing words, so I wanted to kind of unpack them um, together this morning. I'm going to talk about walking in darkness, okay? What does that mean? What does that look like? Because if we under, want to understand and appreciate the light, you have to appreciate and understand the darkness. So we're going to talk about walking in darkness. Um, going to talk about seeing the light, Point number two, seeing the light. What does it look like? How do you know when you're beginning to see the light and come out of the darkness? And then finally, um, how do we walk in the light? Okay? So that's where we're going to go. First, wanted to open up talking about walking in darkness. Uh, Jesus is preaching at this point in John, John chapter 8. He's preaching at the Feast of 
Tabernacles. Um, so if you've been a part of this series and have come throughout the weeks, you might know that's, that's what's happening in John right now. Jesus is preaching at this um, Jewish celebration, commemorating and remembering of how God took care of Israel in the wilderness. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was. It reminded God's people what it was like to be wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness, to be living in tents and tabernacles. And this is why Jesus picks up this theme in John 8 of light and darkness. Because the wilderness, not like a wilderness as we think about it, where you kind of go and it's teeming with life and you know trees and all that stuff, and rivers and um, none of that. The wilderness um, in, in, in the ancient days, it, it's a desert. Um, and so it was pitch black at night. Um, it was not illuminated. It was pitch black. It was a desert. It was a place where the resources had run dry. So um, lack of water, lack of refreshment, lack of shade. So the wilderness was a very important concept for the people of God. Um, the wilderness was that space um, where, where it was dark. It was a space of chaos, a space of disorientation. It's that space where the resources that you're used to living on have now run dry. That's what the desert means as a theme for the people of God throughout, um, throughout the history, uh, throughout, throughout the story of the scriptures. So it raises the question, um, can, you, can you relate to that, okay, to the wilderness, to the desert? Um, Anne Lamont writes in, uh, in her memoir, uh, Traveling Mercy, she, she tells the story. She says, I, I got pregnant in April. Right around my 30th birthday, but was so loaded every night that the next morning's pregnancy test was too skewed to even test positive. I was often sick in the morning. On weekdays, I put coffee on, went for a run, took a shower, had coffee, maybe some speed, a thousand cigarettes, and then tried to write. On weekends, I went to the flea market, and then she wrote about how she would hear um, the, 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 the singing of hymns in the flea market. And there was this church right there, and she would walk in and she would poke her head in and she would see people singing. She would see people smiling. She would see people enjoying themselves. She would see kids running around in between the pews. And, and she thought, that is so incredibly far from my life. And so she says, meanwhile, my life was continuing. I had published three books by then, but none of them had sold particularly well. And I didn't have the money or wherewithal to have a baby. The father was someone I had just met who was married and not one I wanted a real life with or a baby with. So she talks about getting an abortion in the midst of her sadness, and she goes home that night. And she said, I went upstairs to my loft with the drugs the nurses had given me for pain. I drank until nearly dawn, and the next night I did it again, and the next night, I, although by then the pills were gone. And... Um, just darkness, disorientation, chaos, disillusionment. That's the wilderness. And again, your story might not be as pronounced, as elaborate as that. But the wilderness surrounds us. The wilderness is job loss, perhaps. Perhaps the wilderness for you is failing health. Um, maybe it's a breakup. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's wanting to be with someone, but that just not happening, or wanting to have more friends and you just don't seem to have enough friends. Maybe it's um, a marriage that's on the rocks. It's maybe watching someone you love dearly 
um, disrupt their life and make decisions that are spiraling their world downward. Um, The wilderness is maybe you in the midst of an addiction, maybe in the midst of your doubts, of your chaos, of your fragmentation, disorientation, your confusion over why life is the way it is for you. Um, You know, take your work. Maybe it's work. You work really hard. Work becomes your life. And then all of a sudden, you lose your job. Or even if you just retire and you leave your job, and then all of a sudden, this anxiety creeps in. Insecurity creeps in. Fear creeps in. Okay? That's the wilderness. That's the desert. It's that space where the resources that you are used to having in your life have now run dry. And you find yourself going, how did I get here? The wilderness is that place where you realize my life, apart from God, just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. My career cannot sustain me. My uh, looks cannot sustain me. Status doesn't sustain me. My friends don't sustain me. My spouse doesn't sustain me. My kids don't sustain me. Um, and, and it doesn't. And, and the bigger problem is you don't know how to fix it. You can't fix it. You don't know what to do. The, remember, the wilderness is dark. It was pitch black. I was uh, moving furniture outside of um, outside of our house. It was inside, and obviously I was moving the furniture outside. We were going to have um, furniture, new furniture come in the next day. And so I waited till the last second. So I do this job at night, and it's pitch black outside. And I'm just frustrated, and I've waited so long. I procrastinate. So I'm hauling furniture out of my house. I'm setting it up out on, you know, by the side of the house. And I tripped. Um, and when I tripped... I um, I ripped my thumb on the fence, and I was so mad. And then I then I tripped again, and I started stumbling around. And then I can't find the light switch for the outdoor lights, and so I'm just fumbling around again. And um, I'm just a doofus. I just waited too long. But and now you know I get inside. I turn on the lights, and I'm like bloody. I didn't know how it happened. You know. And, and I'm filthy and I'm dirty. And listen, it's kind, of, it's kind of our lives at times, right? I mean, we, we make decisions. We make the wrong decisions. We stumble along in life and we screw up and we, um, we, we make decisions that make us bloodied, bloodied morally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And like the most disillusioning piece is you, you look at your life and you go, I don't even know how I got here. I don't even know how I got here. I don't know how I got this bruise or that bruise or this insecurity or that anxiety. I don't know where it came from. It's like you don't even know where the light switch is. Okay, Um, It's into that place, into the darkness, into the desert, into the wilderness, where you and I, we hear these words of Jesus, and may they be to us incredibly illuminating and refreshing because Jesus says to us in our darkness, I'm it. I am the light. I can turn the light on. I'm it. And listen, before I move on from this point, let me just say, if you're in the wilderness right now, if you can be encouraged by one thing, let it be this. The wilderness in the Bible is the place where God meets his people. It is the place of breakthrough. After the Old Testament is written, there's hundreds of years of Israel's history of darkness, 
of desert, of wilderness. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes. And Jesus doesn't come to the city center. He doesn't come into Rome. He doesn't come where there are lights and industry. No, know where he goes? John comes in John chapter 1 where we read, um, John replied to the, with the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now was the time. People were yearning for God's light, and maybe you're yearning for it right now. Um, if so, you're positioned. I mean, that's, that's the encouragement. You are positioned for the light of Jesus to come. So how do you, let's look at it. Let's understand the light. Let's see the light. We talked about walking in darkness. Let's see the light. Uh, verse 20 of John 8 says this. Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Right there every night in that place, there were two candelabras, two lights that illuminated um, all, the whole, the whole um, part of, of Jerusalem where the temple was. And right in front of these candelabras is where Jesus was teaching this message. So begs the question, what were those candelabras lit for? And if we understand this, we understand what Jesus is saying when he said, I am the light of the world. The two candelabras, what did they represent? They commemorated the fact that though Israel was wandering in the wilderness, in the darkness, they were led by the light of God. And the light of God came to them in two ways. We're told in Exodus 13, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. So the way God, the way the light of God came, the light in the day was a cloud that shaded the people of God from the killer heat that was coming down. Then at night when it was pitch black, the light of God was a glory fire. That's what it was. And so what, what the cloud represented for the nation of Israel while they were wandering was the presence of God, the glory of God. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. It was his very presence. So Jesus comes in John chapter 8, and he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus was claiming that he's God, that he is the presence of God. And that's why you have in John 8, after Jesus says, I am the light of the world, there's this exchange between him and the Pharisees, the religious of the day, about his authority. And, and, and what they couldn't grasp is that this is God speaking to them in the person of Jesus Christ. I am the cloud by day, I am the shade by day, and I am the glory by night. So just think about those two candelabras. Think about what the light means when you look at it. He's the shade. Jesus is saying, when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, I am the, the glory cloud of shade in your life. And the reason why you needed the shade is because the heat was, was going to kill you. And it was coming down. And so he mediated between you and, and the sun. And in the very same way, Jesus is our cloud he mediates between us and the Father. He, he is the cloud that shields us from our own consciences. You realize that? You know, as we get older, as I get older, I start thinking about my life five years ago, ten years ago, and you just, you know, it's easy just for regrets to pop up. You start thinking, why didn't I do that? I, you know, I wish that would have gone differently. 
and you just get bogged down by guilt and shame. And it's like a cloud over you, the cloud of your own conscience. I was uh, watching um, uh, Flipping the Channels with my wife last week. And um, a show came on, and we hadn't watched it, so um, it looked interesting. It's uh, Gordon Ramsay's new show, okay? Gordon Ramsay, the Kitchen Nightmares guy, and he's got this new show. It's like Kitchen Nightmares on steroids. And he comes in, and he, in 24 hours, takes a you know, horrible restaurant and makes it into something beautiful. And sure enough, this restaurant he walked into was horrible. I mean, it was disaster. You know, he sits down and he eats the food and terrible. Send it back. Send it back. You know, um, you know how, how could you even do that? How could you even serve this? You know, did you microwave? You microwave this, didn't you? Okay. And so he's just yelling at him. He's sending the food back. Then he goes into the kitchen and it's disgusting. He goes into the, um, into the freezer. He vomits. I mean, he's, it's just, it's nasty. Okay. So then, if you've ever seen what he does, he brings the whole staff and, and, and everyone together, and he talks first and foremost with the owner. Now, the owner didn't start the restaurant. He's the son of the man who started the restaurant, and his dad is pouring money into this restaurant. It's draining money. It's this black hole, just draining resources, and his son can't get it together. And, um, and so Gordon Ramsay is lacing in to this owner, this son. And this son is so defensive. No, our food's great. No, it's fine. No, it's good. No, I mean, no, that's how we cook it. That's how we cook it. And if you've ever seen Gordon Ramsay, he just, if you're, if you're dense and you don't just admit that you're wrong, he just elevates it. He cranks it up to 11 and he just goes harder and harder and harder. And he does that. And then eventually the son snaps and he goes, have you ever disappointed your father every day of your life? Because that's what I do. Every day of my life, I have disappointed my father. I went, oh my gosh, this is like, where's Dr. Phil? You know, like this is a moment, right? And um, Gordon Ramsay was not the shade, okay, (laughs) over this guy's conscience at all. laced into him. But I thought, man, man, that is, that's, that's us sometimes, right? Can we say we've been there? I just, I I mean, you feel like a disappointment and you feel like you've got this cloud over your conscience about your life. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. I am the shade. I can mediate between you and the God who made you. I can remove your guilt and your shame. And listen, it, it didn't happen in my, in my life right away. I, I grew up with a shade a cloud of guilt and shame. I grew up in the church and I grew up religious and and I had this notion that God loved me because I was a good, upstanding, decent human being and I wasn't doing this or that over there. I was doing this and this. And, And so I had this thought that God loved me when I do good things. He disliked me when I do bad things. And it wasn't until I got actually to college and, and Chuck was actually really instrumental here because I began to understand grace and the coin finally dropped and I realized, wait a second, grace means I have a, Jesus is, is my cloud covering me. And he's not, wait a second, God's not mad at me. That's what it means when Jesus is your shade. God is not mad at you. And I started even thinking about theologically, wait a second, can the father ever be mad at the son? No. Then how could he ever be mad at me if Jesus is my shade? And, and, I hope you you experience that. As God looks at you right now and thinks about your life, 
What is the look on his face? And if it is anything other than sheer joy and delight and rejoicing over you, a smile of delight over you, then you haven't seen the light. He has yet to become your shade, your glory shade. That was one candelabra. The other candelabra represented um, the fact that Jesus was our guide. What, in the pitch black of the wilderness, what did the light do? It guided the people of Israel. It took them to where they needed to go because in the dark they had no idea where they were going. And you know you're beginning to see the light. Maybe you've, ever, maybe you've witnessed a very mature person, a mature Christian, who life is not going well for them, and yet they have this inner poise, this courage, this strength to face the hardships of life. It's almost as if, yes, it's dark, but they know where the light is. They know where the switch is. They understand that God has taken them through this. They've, they've accepted that. They know that the only way out is through. They don't try to avoid suffering. They go through it, and they, meet, they have Jesus meet them there. That's because they, they have a guide. And in the, in, the, in the darkness, they know where the light switch is. That's why Jesus says in verse 12, I am your light, I am your shade, I am your guide. So that's what happens when you see the light. When you see the light, you realize, wait a second, he's my shade. He's, he's my mediator. He died for me. God is not mad at me. He loves me. He rejoices over me. Wait a second, he's my guide. In the darkness, I have a way through. Jesus is my guide. So what I, want, what I wanted to do, kind of the last idea, last point, is just kind of walk through, I want to be as practical as possible, how to walk in the light. How to not walk in darkness, but walk in the light. Better yet, how do you know you're doing it? How do you know you're walking in the light? Just a couple of ideas here. The first one is this. You know you're walking in the light when you find yourself listening to Jesus and listening to the scriptures. Um, you listen to a guide, okay? If I want to lose 20 pounds and I hire a guide, a coach, I don't argue with them over which equipment to use, which exercise to do. I just need to shut up and listen to my guide, right? And, um, and that's what you do when you, when you bring a guide into your life. You have to listen to them. Jesus is the opposite of Jiminy Cricket, okay? Uh, Jiminy Cricket, the theologian, um, once famously said, um, let your conscience be your guide. And Jesus comes, and when he says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, don't do that. That's dumb, okay? Um, he, he'll doctor fill you and say, how's that going for you, you know? Um, Jesus, Jesus is our guide. Um, Frederica Matthews Green is a minister, and she talks about um, her conversion experience. She says, almost, almost 24 years ago, I walked into a church in Dublin, a Hindu, and walked out a Christian. I had an unexpected confrontation with the presence of one I discovered to be my Lord and was set reeling. I knew I needed operating instructions quickly and particularly wanted to find out who this Jesus was. I hunted up a Bible, a pocket-sized King James with print several microns high, and I plunged into the Gospel of Matthew. I disliked it from the start. Jesus was often abrupt and hard-edged. I disagreed with some of the things he said. I was offended. But something had happened in my heart. The confrontation in the church had knocked a hole in my ego. I knew at last that I did not make the world. I did not know everything. And it was time for me to sit down, shut up, and listen. 
I kept working my way through the Gospels, and they began working their way through me. There, I love this. There are still parts of the Bible that I don't like. But I like the parts I don't like. Because I know that's where I need to listen harder. That's when you know you're walking in the light. If you're asleep and it's dark in your room, and then all of a sudden the light comes in, it's kind of annoying. It disrupts you. It arrests your attention. What is this? And you don't like it. But you get up. And you know you're walking in the light. When even you find the places in Scripture that you disagree with, you continue to move forward with Jesus as your guide. Um, it means that we listen to him. Uh, here's another practical thing. It, it, when you're walking in the light, you, you obey him. Seems kind of simple, but it says in First John, walk in the light. If you say, I walk in the light, but you don't obey his commandments, you're a liar. I used to hear that verse and think, yeah, that just seems like moralism and legalism and, you know, God saying, obey me. You know, if you want a relationship with me, obey me. If you don't obey me, you don't get my love. If you do obey me, you know, you don't. You're a liar. And, and um, I did a wedding last night. I officiated that wedding last night. And do you know where... Got me thinking, you know where uh, God marries the people of Israel? Where he sets up a covenant with them? And it's, um, it's in the Old Testament. It's on Mount Sinai. That's the wedding ceremony for, for the Israelites. Where God marries the people of Israel, and when he does, he gives them a list. Ten commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. You want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm like? You know, want to know what I love? Want to know what I hate? Here's a list. Let's be married. You want intimacy with me? You can have it. Here's a list. And I did the ceremony last night. Wouldn't that be amazing? If like the, the couples, they do their vows and then, and then together they go, here, honey, here's a list. You know, here's, here's a list into my heart. You want to know the, the 10 ways to get into my heart? Here you go. You know, of course we don't get that. You have to figure it out and it's kind of frustrating. God gave you a list. <laughs> And it's not, it's not punitive. It's not, <laughs> it's not him saying, if you screw this up, um, you're out. He said, I have already saved you from Egypt, from slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. He didn't say, here's the list. If you obey it, then I'll rescue you and save you. What he's doing is he is inviting us into intimacy with himself. You want to know what I'm like? Here you go. Here's a list. Obedience is one of the main ways we can walk in the light. And we need to stop looking at it as if he's, it's something punitive or it's something um, uh, to, to a gotcha you know, moment in our relationship with God. It is a loving invitation into intimacy with him. And the last thing I'll mention just by practical way of thinking through if you've walked in the light or not, or if you are, you begin to um, view yourself differently. Light does that. Light exposes Dirtiness, darkness. Um, my my kids were at my parents' house, um, and they we you know got home way too late to pick them up, uh, to take them home. It was dark outside. They were asleep. I knew that they had been you know rustling in the ground and and playing throughout the day at my parents' house, but they were asleep. So we got them. We took them into the car, and it's there's a little bit of light in the car, and I go, oh man, my kids are dirty. But you know what? It's late. We're just going to put them to bed. So we put them to bed. And then the light comes up in the morning. And then, oh my gosh, they were filthy. I mean, they were filthy. Um, light does that. The more light that comes in, the more you realize, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm filthy. Um, here are the imperfections. Light exposes that. 
So consider this. Consider that um, the more godly you become, the less godly you feel. The more godly you become, the less godly you feel. You begin to see how self-centeredness and sin is a thread in every decision you make. You see it in the way you treat the person in the drive through line with disdain and condescension. You're impatient. You begin to not feel like, I've, I'm a Christian. I'm godly. You know, I'm better than other people. You begin to just be in awe that there is a God who knows everything about you and he loves you. As Jack Miller said, um, author, Pastor Jack Miller said, um, uh, you are more sinful than you realize, but more love than you could ever imagine at the exact same time. This, that's that new identity, the gospel of Jesus, the light of Jesus gives you. He actually said when someone came into his office and said, oh, pastor, you're not going to believe this. I've really screwed up. I've done this. I've done that. Uh, I made a mess and I'm so bad. I got guilt. I got shame. He would look at them and he would say, cheer up. You're worse than you think. And I love that. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. You really think you have mined the depths of your depravity. <laughs> you haven't. You're worse than, you're th- than you think. But cheer up. You're more love than you could ever imagine. And so you begin to get this new identity when you're walking in the light. It's humility and confidence. At the same time, it replaces arrogance. It replaces self-pity and this woe is me kind of attitude. It's humility and confidence together. Um, Which begs this question, um, and I'll end with a story. Um, Are you letting the light into the darkness, into the wilderness places of your life? Anne Lamont writes about one of those nights of um, drinking and drugs, and she said, After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner, and I just assumed it was my father, whose presence I had felt over the years, and I was frightened and alone. That feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any, any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this, and I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on, the, on his hunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love. I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because that's now what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep in the morning he was gone. This experience spooked me badly, but I thought it was just an apparition, born of fear and self-loathing and the pain. And then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my house door whenever I entered or left. And one week later, I went back to that church by the flea market. I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous. Like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. 
But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to the feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction. I raced home. I felt the little cat running along my heels and I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams and I opened the door to my house and I stood there a minute and I hung my head and said, screw it, I quit. I took a long deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. This is my beautiful moment of conversion. So I'll ask you, in your desert places, in the dark places, can we get to that place where we go, come on in. We need the light of life. Let me pray for us.